Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Missing Lei Feng by Andrea Worden Published on March 5th, 2018, by the Los Angeles Review of Books, China Channel. Read by the author. March 5th is known in China as Learn from Leifeng Day. Each year, as the date approaches, I feel nostalgic. In the early 1990s, Leifeng and I became inseparable. I've kept an eye on him ever since. China's model hero of selfless service to the people and unwavering loyalty to the Chinese Communist Party has been used over the years as a tool to stoke the legitimacy of the party. In 1990, Lei Feng, Mao's good soldier, had a particularly important mission, seeing the party through the first anniversary of the June 4th massacre without incident. He rose to the occasion, and I did my part, inadvertently, to help. In the fall of 1989, as I began a PhD program in Chinese history at Stanford, I was still reeling from the events of that spring. I had been living in Changsha, Hunan province at the time, finishing up a two-year fellowship with the Yale China Association. One day in early February of 1990, I got a call from a Chinese friend at Stanford. After confirming that Wu Yuting was my Chinese name and that I had taught English in Hunan, she said in Mandarin, Lei Feng belongs to the world. It took a moment to register. How on earth do you know that I wrote that? I'm not the only one. It's a headline in the People's Daily, she said. She read the first paragraph to me. Out of admiration for Lei Feng, an American teacher, Wu Ting, went to the Lei Feng Exhibition Hall in Wangcheng County. After looking at the exhibits, she excitedly wrote in the visitor's book, Lei Feng belongs to the world. Those words were unfortunately mine, but out of admiration and excitedly, that was the People's Daily. Do you know how many millions of people read the People's Daily? You're famous, my friend said. I first encountered Lei Feng at Yale in a Chinese sociology course. Chairman Mao's rustless screw in the socialist cause returned lost children to their parents, helped the elderly find seats on trains, washed his comrades' clothes on his days off, and donated his savings to the commune. His motto from the diary he conveniently left behind after his untimely death in 1962 at age 21 or 22, both ages appear in different reports, sums up his mission. Human life is limited, but service to the people is unlimited. We should devote our limited lives to the unlimited service of the people. 
Like many others, when they first encounter the endless tales of the young soldier's good deeds and the numerous professional quality photographs documenting his service and study of Mao's works, I was skeptical. Yale China placed me at Hunan Medical College in Changsha. I was delighted. Hunan was the birthplace of many important communist revolutionaries. There was Mao, of course, revolutionary-in-chief, but also his loyal soldier, Lei Feng, born just a few miles outside Changsha proper. I looked forward to visiting at some point, thinking that perhaps a visit to Leifeng Town, originally Ping'an Town, it was renamed in Leifeng's honor in 1969, might shed some light on the mysteries surrounding his life. Perhaps because it was so close, it kept moving lower down on my to-do-before-I-leave list. It didn't help matters that my students and friends had absolutely no interest in Leifeng. Whenever students came over to the Yale China house, they looked quizzically at the poster of Leifeng hanging on our kitchen wall. One student finally asked me about it. I mumbled something defensively about being interested and slightly amused by his story. She smiled awkwardly, too respectful to press the point. Indeed, it had been a struggle to even purchase the poster at the small shop in Changsha that, to my surprise, had a few for sale. When I asked for the Leifeng poster, the shop clerk handed me a large calendar featuring beautiful Chinese women in skimpy bathing suits instead, proclaiming it more suitable. When I declined and insisted on the Leifeng poster, she gave me a look I had become accustomed to. A look that said, I'll never understand you foreigners. One of my colleagues had scoured Changsha's bookstores for a copy of Leifeng's infamous diary, to no avail. One shop clerk told him, you're 10 years too late. In early spring 1989, I told a friend in Changsha that I was planning to go to Leifeng's hometown, thinking that perhaps she might like to join me. No one goes there anymore, she said. Why do you want to? Leifeng's a joke. We all think so. He was a screw in Mao's machine, not a person. Mayo Isa, it's of no interest. Boring. She offered a few examples of his idiocy. His death topped the list. Lei was an army truck driver at the time. As he directed his assistant into a parking place, his comrade hit a telephone pole, which fell on Leifeng's head. He died a revolutionary martyr a few days later. Several of my graduate students eventually agreed to join me on an excursion to Leifeng Town. They weren't necessarily fans of Leifeng, but for them, it would be a leisurely bike ride in the suburbs of Changsha, a picnic, and most important, a full day to practice English outside the classroom with their American teacher. They didn't care where we went. On May 7th, we set off for Leifeng Town. My students shared stories about the Leifeng of their youth. They explained how they were required to write essays, evaluating their thoughts and conduct against the standards that appeared in Leifeng's diary. Do you know about the diary controversy? One of my students asked. I did, but I wanted to hear what my student had to say. He explained that the language and style were far too sophisticated for someone of Leifeng's background, who had been a poor orphan with limited education. 
After we'd walked around the museum, Lei Mengxuan, the earnest manager, motioned us into the visitor's room. He offered us tea and opined about his beloved distant relative. He looked at me and then at my students. Guessing why they were there, he announced, foreigners are more interested in Lei Feng than Chinese are. He handed me the visitor's book and asked if I might write some words about my impressions. Although I had grown more skeptical about the veracity of Lei Feng's story after looking at the exhibits, it would have been impolite to refuse, particularly after he'd given me some materials for my future study back in America, as a substitute for the elusive diary I had requested. Not even Mr. Lei had a spare copy of Lei Feng's diary. I conferred with my students. Since I was a foreigner, it made sense to touch on the relevance of Lei Feng beyond China. I wanted to write something that wouldn't offend, but that might also suggest that Lei Feng was more myth than reality, that he at once existed nowhere and everywhere. As I wrote, Lei Feng belongs to the world in Chinese, Mr. Lei beamed. A student snickered in hushed tones. If Lei Feng were alive today, he'd be studying English to go abroad. In my rushed departure after the Tiananmen massacre five weeks later, I threw most of my things into some crates that I never expected to see again, and packed my prized possessions into a knapsack. Journals, photos, wall posters from the demonstrations in Changsha, and of course, the poster of Lei Feng. The Lei Feng poster came with me to Stanford, a source of comfort in an alien land of clean air, perpetual sun, and relentless wealth. The first time some Chinese classmates came over to my apartment, their gaze went straight to the poster. One of them started chuckling. Why do you have a poster of Lei Feng on your wall? I just think the whole Lei Feng thing is kind of funny, that's all. Lei Feng was an idiot, said another. That first article in the February 3rd, 1990 edition of the People's Daily that bore my headline, there was more than one, also contained a paragraph about Lei Feng at West Point. I had heard and promptly dismissed the rumor about West Point cadets studying Lei Feng while I was in Changsha. My Chinese friends insisted it was true. This is what the article had to say about West Point. At the famous American West Point Military Academy, five portraits of the most revered heroes hang in the lobby. Lei Feng's is first. An excerpt from Lei Feng's diary is printed in the student handbook. Human life is limited but service to the people is unlimited. We should devote our limited lives to the unlimited service of the people. Lei Feng and I were becoming inextricably intertwined. There was no escaping it. So I called West Point. An officer in the public relations department responded to my query. Sure, I know who Lei Feng is, as if he were asked that question every day. When I asked if anyone else had called about Lei Feng, he said he first heard of Lei during the summer of 1989 when some members of a Chinese film crew visited the academy. So no American reporters have called you? I asked. No, why? Do you realize there are millions of people in China who think that Lei Feng is studied at West Point? I translated the paragraph from the article and asked him if it was true. He said that he didn't think so, but that he would get back to me. 
he asked me some due diligence questions, such as, who are you exactly? And why do you want to know? And said again that he would get back to me. I wasn't expecting to hear from him. A few days later, he left a message on my answering machine. When I called back, he wasn't there. I gave my name to the woman who answered the phone. She immediately said, Oh, I think I can help you. You're calling about Lei Feng, right? Uh, yes. Oh, we're all really interested in this. And you know, we got a call from AP this morning about the same thing. It seems that a similar article was published in a newspaper in Beijing. We checked into it, and there is no portrait of Lei Feng anywhere in the school. And he certainly is not part of the set curriculum. He very well might be mentioned in some Asian studies class, but he definitely is not part of the course of study. Um, how about the quotation in the handbook? I asked. There's no Lei Feng quotation, unless he said, duty honor country, she said, laughing. I guess we should feel honored that they think we are worthy of learning from their great hero, she added. My friend encouraged me to write something about my Lei Feng experience for the Chinese student email network at Stanford. Historical note, this was 1990, when email for popular usage barely existed, the internet was not widely available, and social media was years away. My short piece was then forwarded to a national email network where China Spring, one of the leading Chinese dissident magazines, picked it up and translated it into Chinese. After that story appeared in May 1990, some Chinese friends at Stanford told me that their friends and former classmates from China who were now in the U.S., were asking them if they knew me. Later that month, the president of the Chinese Students and Scholars Association at Berkeley invited me to speak at a panel discussion on Lei Feng. A week or so later, I ran into a friend at the Stanford Post Office. Hey, your talk at Berkeley on Lei Feng and moral Stalinism sounds really interesting. I'm going to try my best to make it. Moral Stalinism? I went to my mailbox to find an announcement for the talk. It described how I had developed a strong academic interest in Lei Feng after my run-ins with the People's Daily. The afternoon of the talk at Berkeley, I was interviewed by the World Journal, the most popular Chinese-language newspaper in the U.S. The article, Wu Yuting Discusses Lei Feng, appeared soon thereafter. Out to dinner one night with some classmates, Lei Feng came up, as often happened, and the Taiwanese wife of one of my classmates turned to me and said, that was you? I cut that article out to Xerox and send back to China. It's great counter-propaganda. My story had gone viral, in a 1990s sort of way. Leifeng was making me famous. In late July 1990, yet another Chinese classmate at Stanford asked me if I had seen the most recent article about Leifeng in the People's Daily. No, what was it about? Leifeng at Harvard. The article, purportedly written by a leader of the Learn from Leifeng movement at Harvard, described how a group of Chinese students, moved by Leifeng's spirit, organized a mass movement to clean up Harvard Yard. Many Americans reportedly joined in. One participant called it an unforgettable day. The article went on to say that Leifeng's name quickly became well-known at Harvard. And so I called the Harvard Crimson. If anyone knew Leifeng's name at Harvard, it would be the students at the Crimson. Have you heard of Leifeng? I asked the news editor. No, is he a student here? He asked his colleagues in the newsroom. No one had heard of Leifeng. 
Do you know anything about a massive cleanup of the yard one Saturday about a month or so ago? I asked. No, but this sounds like a great story. I had become part of the most intense Leifeng revival since Mao first called on the country to learn from Leifeng in 1963. Over half a million copies of Leifeng's diary were reissued in advance of March 5, 1990, in time for the first anniversary of Tiananmen, with a new preface by Yang Baibing, then chief army political commissar, who wrote that the martial law troops in June 1989 were following Leifeng's call to devote their limited lives to the unlimited service of the people. There emerged many Leifeng-type soldiers. They put the people's benefit above everything and bravely gave all to this goal, he wrote. A new tactic for Leifeng's post-Tiananmen revival was to show how popular Leifeng was among foreigners. The rationale appeared to go something like this. If young Chinese were so eager to accept new ideas from the West, if they learned that Americans were studying Leifeng, then they might decide he couldn't be all that bad, and that they should more earnestly study him too. Over the next few years, stories and inquiries about Leifeng's sightings trickled in. Vivian Chu of the South China Morning Post got in touch before she visited Leifeng town in 1992. She interviewed Lei Mengxuan, the enthusiastic manager of the museum, and mentioned to me. Ms. Chu wrote in her article, At the mention of Wu Yuting, Ms. Worden's Chinese name, Mr. Lei almost jumped up with excitement. She inspired me and inspired the whole country, he said. In February 1993, a friend from Changsha sent me an article from China Youth Daily about a reporter's trip to Leifeng Town. Midway through the article, the journalist wrote, In May 1989, a young American woman named Wu Yuting made a special trip to the Leifeng Museum. She spent three days copying large portions of Leifeng's diary and other stories about his life and deeds. Grasping the museum manager's hands, she said, When I was little, I often heard my father talk about an amazing person from China named Leifeng. Today, I finally have come to this place I've been yearning to see for such a long time. While I was here, I received the most profound education of my whole life. I want to take Leifeng's spirit back with me and pass it on to my students to let them learn how they should act when they grow up. Things eventually died down on the Leifeng front, and I went on to other pursuits. Leifeng has not fared particularly well in the cynical and wired reality of contemporary China, particularly during the Internet's earlier, more freewheeling days. Netizens have unpacked many inconsistencies in the official stories of Leifeng's hagiography and have vented about the hypocrisy of inordinately wealthy and privileged Chinese officials calling on the people to learn from the selfless and frugal communist icon. But the party is determined to rein in challenges to its heroes and martyrs, because in the party's version of things, such attacks are tantamount to challenging its legitimacy. 
defaming and harming the reputation of communist heroes and martyrs, whether real or constructed, is now a civil and criminal offense. In January 2015, the accidental creator of the Leifung at West Point myth confessed on Weibo. On April 1st, 1981, Li Zhurun, then a Xinhua reporter, saw an article published by a U.S. news agency describing how Leifeng was studied and emulated at West Point. He didn't know at the time that the news published on April Fool's Day was fake news. Li reported the story in Xinhua as if it were true. And from there, the story took on a life of its own. He called it one of the biggest mistakes of my life. I wonder how Lee is faring after his unwelcome confession. What if Lei Feng were alive now in Xi Jinping's new era? It's clear that he couldn't be both a paragon of serving the people and a party loyalist. It's one or the other. I'd like to think that Lei Feng would have left the People's Liberation Army and become a human rights defender. Working at a grassroots NGO, helping members of the low-end population in Beijing as they battled demolitions and forced expulsions. And for that, Lei Feng would have landed in jail. But the party continues to use him for its own self-serving purposes, now to promote core socialist values. I miss Lei Feng, but fortunately, he's never far away. The poster I wrested from a reluctant Changsha shop clerk over 30 years ago now hangs, framed, high in a prominent spot in my condo in Washington, D.C. He's keeping an eye out. I'm confident he'll be there for me in a pinch. But in the meantime, I sure wish he'd do my laundry.